Atkins' diet has been a bullseye for critics of diet. People say it's unbalanced, it has too much fat, it's dangerous. But the thing that has really interested me is going back and looking at human history because many of our ancestors, before the advent of agriculture, whether agriculture came to us 8,000 years ago if you're from China or the Middle East, or came to us 150 years ago if you were, say, a Native American living in this turf right here in, in Colorado, before the advent of carbohydrates, our ancestors were called hunter-gatherers. And there are a lot of assumptions that they did a lot of gathering and that they got a lot of native fruits and vegetables and that's how they balanced their diet. But when you look at the dietary practices of the Native Americans who lived in the area where the buffalo were indigenous, it appears that those cultures evolved to become highly successful hunting cultures with a minimization or complete avoidance of gathering and certainly no farming. The native peoples who lived here on the Great Plains ate mostly buffalo and in many circumstances, almost nothing but the buffalo, and had highly evolved cultures around their uh, hunting and food preservation practices. How did they do it? And were they miserable people who were stunted, unhealthy, and sickly all of their lives? Or had they found ways to be healthy eating a low-carbohydrate diet? So what interested me in this book by George Catlin, which was published initially in 1844. Now, Catlin was not a, a author, per se, a writer. He was a painter, and he came west with his paints and his brushes and his sketching pads and pencils, and he lived among groups of uh, native peoples. He, he came west, went up the Missouri River, came down along the Front Range, went down as far south as Texas, and lived among groups of native peoples who had little or no contact with the European origin people. He went up the Missouri River about 25 years after Lewis and Clark actually met indigenous people who had met Lewis and remembered Lewis and Clark and lived among those peoples and painted them and, and then wrote a series of letters and described them. So these books are replete with, it says, over 300 illustrations. And as you can see, he has some exquisitely painted and in some case pencil drawings. The women, children, villages, country scenes, burial practices. It's a rich and original history of native peoples. And what caught my mind. I was looking in there for details about the diet. And he doesn't really go into diet very much. He just assumes that everybody would understand. But he would live for, he was out sometimes for a year carrying no provisions, living off the land, and he clearly ate a diet that was, consisted of meat and fat with virtually no carbohydrate. Well, if these were buffalo that he was eating, then he must have been eating a lot of protein. Well, he was eating buffalo, he was eating prairie hen, he was eating fish from the rivers, and we assume that he ate a lot of protein. In actuality, what it appears that the native people did was they timed their hunt and they selected the animals they hunted for the quality of having fairly high levels, if not very high levels, of body fat. So if you, for instance, if you killed a buffalo in the fall or early winter, you killed an animal that had a lot of body fat. By the way, they hunted generally in small groups of maybe two or three families. So you might have anywhere from 15 to 30 people in a hunting party. An adult cow buffalo would weigh about 1,500 pounds. A bull would weigh between 2,000 and 2,500 pounds. Now, what do you do if you are, let's say it's October, and the daytime temperatures are way above freezing, and the nighttime temperatures might get down to freezing. What do you do with 1,500 to 2,000 pounds of buffalo, and there are only 10 or 15 of you? 
once they had killed a buffalo, they would pitch their teepee next to the carcass, and they would go to work on the carcass. They, you know, they would skin the carcass. They would start to work with the skin, but they would cut the meat and cut the fat. Uh, the meat would be sliced into thin slices and hung up to, on racks to dry in the sunlight, so it was naturally dried meat. And within two or three days, they'd have pretty much the whole carcass either drying or dried. They'd take the fat and cook it to remove the liquid fat. They would sew sacks out of the parts of the hide with the hair on the outside and the, the rawhide part of, the, of the, the skin on the inside. And they would take the dried meat, pound it up, and stuff it into the sack. So the sack was full of, of pounded dried meat. And then they would take hot buffalo fat and pour it in to fill in all the air spaces around the meat, pouring it in hot, and then sew the top of the sack closed with no airspace. When it cooled, you had a solid block of fat mixed with meat, and that was called pemmican. And pemmican, once it was produced in that way, could be transported and stored anywhere from six months to five years, depending on the, how the pemmican was prepared and the time of year that the buffalo was harvested. In other words, at the end of a week after they'd had a successful hunt, this band of people, they and their dogs would be eating off the carcass for that week, you know, eating the fresh meat, eating the marrow from the bones, which to them was a delicacy and probably was a rich source of minerals and calcium and fat. They'd leave with maybe 100 to 150 pounds of dried meat and fat, and a human could live on one pound of pemmican per day as a sustenance food. Basically what they could do, if they killed one buffalo per month, you know, a band of 15 to 30 people could live on that and carry the stored foods. They were very successful and killed, say, 10 buffalo in one month. They would be burdened with maybe 1,000 pounds of food, but that 1,000 pounds of food would feed them for 100 days. That's all pretty well known if you want to re research the nutrition literature. If this is all well known, what about it made it so fascinating for you to dig into and look at more closely? If you look deep the nutrition literature, pemmican and its use as a stored food to help people through periods of poor hunting was well known. It was also used as the primary food for the people who transported furs out of the Canadian interior down through the Great Lakes and back to Quebec uh, for the Canadian Northwest Company. If you had people whose job was to paddle canoes full of furs, you didn't want to have them spend a lot of their time hunting and fishing for food. And so the Northwest Company purchased pemmican from the native peoples of the uh, upper Midwest, such as the Sioux, who want to be called Lakota, and the uh, Chippewa nations, and that was their source of food. That's all well known. But what wasn't really appreciated was when people live on this type of food, meat and fat, and by the way, the implication of, the, of pemmican is it actually has many more calories as fat than it does of protein. So it's a moderate protein, high fat diet. When you say moderate protein, high fat, what are those ratios? Uh, people have not done analysis of the calorie ratio of protein to fat from pemmican made by Aboriginal people before European influence. There was never chemical analysis done of it. My estimates, based on the descriptions, are it was between 20 and 25 percent of energy as protein and 75 to 80 percent of energy as fat. People, of course, they lived on this by also getting berries or salads or something so that they got their vitamin C, their carbohydrates. Surely they added other things to this diet. That has always been the implication that, quote, hunter-gatherers did that. But the evidence and descriptions by people like Catlin and others is different groups of indigenous people had different dietary practices, but some of them existed as essentially pure hunters. The Lakota 
Dakota and Nakota nations, the people who don't like to be called the Sioux Nation, were nomadic peoples who did not farm, who lived on the prairie. There was very little in the way of fruit or vegetables available to them for most of the annual cycle of the year. And the warrior group of males in particular prided themselves in not eating women's food, which might be gathered vegetables. The other thing that has been said about pemmican was the native peoples always put dried berries in it. But the best pemmican was made in the very late fall or early winter, a time when berries would not be available. The reason berries were put in pemmican was when they sold pemmican to the Europeans, the Europeans wanted a different flavor or a different texture, and they weren't used to the austerity of the uh, indigenous pemmican. But the reason why the indigenous pemmican was made free of vegetable and berry matter was that if you made it right, you could store it for a year or up to five years, which means these people could carry with 100 pounds of food and 10 people in their party, they could carry enough food to get them through a couple weeks of having no hunting at all. You did not want to open a bag of pemmican and find that it was spoiled when you needed it. And so they kept it pure. But if they wanted to please the European customers who were buying it from them, they would stick in things that the Europeans wanted. Well, you're describing some people who were not Eskimos. They weren't Inuit. We know that this kind of diet was something that the Inuit used. It was similar to that. There have been many arguments among nutritionists and food scientists and health practitioners saying that the Inuit are genetically special and only they can eat that kind of a high-fat diet. And now you're saying that the Native Americans through the Plains area did the same thing. That's correct. Native Americans in the Plains area and working with Dr. Jay Wortman in uh, British Columbia, we've looked carefully at the composition of the diets of the people who lived along the Pacific coast from Vancouver all the way north through the panhandle of Alaska. And we find, again, that those people ate a moderate protein, high-fat diet, They ate some berries, but there were no other carbohydrates or foods available to them for gathering, and the berries were only seasonal. Uh, So people there ate a diet that we again estimate is probably 25% of energy as protein and upwards of 70% of calories as fat, maybe 5%, averaged over the whole year, 5% of energy from carbohydrate. Now, it doesn't end there. There is an elegant study that was done in what is now Kenya by two British scientists a physician named Orr and a surgeon named Gilks, and they studied people who lived in the plateau area in inland Kenya. Many of those people were farmers, and they were from a tribe called the Kikuyu. They farmed and ate a mostly vegetarian, relatively low-protein diet. They didn't get much animal protein in their diet, whereas the people who lived adjacent to them in the same area were the Maasai. The herders who had cattle and sheep and hunted People oftentimes who've looked at old copies of National Geographic have seen pictures of the Maasai who were quite tall. Many of the males would be between six and seven feet tall. Rather than looking at unusual examples of height, what Gilks and Orr did was they went among those people and measured all the people, literally measured them with measuring tape, height, diameters, weights, uh, measured their health status such as dental problems in the adults, and looked at their overall health. And what they found was the average male was six inches taller than a Kikuyu male, and the average Maasai female was three to four inches taller than a typical Kikuyu female. And the most astounding thing was that for young adults, the Maasai males and females had most of their natural teeth, and the Kikuyu, by the time they were in their mid-20s or early 30s, had lost something approaching half their teeth. Well, let's look back again at their diets. What are the Kikuyu eating, or what were they eating, and what were the Maasai eating? 
the Kikuyu were raising vegetables, including millet for carbohydrate, and tubers, such as manioc root. So they had a range of, of vegetables. Protein was from small animals they hunted. They did not have farm animals, whereas the Maasai kept beef, cattle, and sheep, and they drank milk, they ate meat, and this might seem a little unpleasant for people not initiated to it, but they drank blood. When they killed an animal, they kept the blood, but more importantly, they would use a little lancet and prick a vein in a cow and collect a cup of blood and use that as a condiment in their diet. You know, blood sounds unpleasant, but it's an excellent source of iron, a good source of protein, and other trace minerals, particularly for the Maasai males, particularly the hunting class, the ones who were supposed to hunt for food and protect the cattle from lions and, and other uh, predators. It was a cultural practice that they avoided all vegetable food. They prided themselves in never eating anything other than blood, meat, and fat. And when we look at their diet, based on the descriptions of ore and gilks, their diet was about 30% protein and over 65% fat. Is there sugar in milk? Is there sugar in blood? In all of the blood circulating in my body, there's about one teaspoon of sugar. Blood is not a rich source of sugar. We talk about blood sugar. Actually, the body, unless you have diabetes, it's very quick about getting, for all mammals, not just humans, getting the sugar out of our blood. Yes, there's sugar in milk, depending on the, the breed of the cow and so on. It maybe represents about a third of the energy in milk. It's not table sugar. It's lactose. It's a natural form of sugar that all milk, human milk, cow's milk, all mammalian milks contain lactose. Uh, and, it's, and it's metabolized somewhat differently than table sugar. Well, Steve Finney, in the United States, it's generally well recognized that whole milk is not very good for people and should be pulled down to skim. Is that what the Maasai did to make their milk more healthy? No, they actually treasured the fat in the milk. And the fatter of the milk, the richer the cream, the more treasured it was. Then, then let's stop for a second and look at what was wrong with the Maasai. Surely they had some health problems. I mean, you described a diet for the Maasai and for the Native Americans in the plains, which would not have much vitamin C because it doesn't have fruit or berries in it. So they had scurvy? That was a hypothesis back in the 1920s after vitamin C was discovered and found to be provided to us predominantly from fruits and vegetables. And at that time, an Arctic explorer who had lived among the Inuit, who said that he could live on the Inuit diet consisting of, of uh, meat and fat only, he was uh, basically called a liar. And to salvage his reputation, he allowed himself to be locked up in Bellevue Hospital in New York City for most of the calendar year of 1928. Well, actually, he was only locked up for the first three months. And after it was demonstrated that he would uh, follow the rules and behave, he was allowed to, to go out a little bit, but was continued under close monitoring. And for that whole year, he ate a diet consisting of meat and fat that was about 15 to 20% protein and about 80% of energy coming from fat, very high-fat diet, with no fruits and vegetables, no vitamin pills, and he did not develop scurvy. Did he have Native American blood? Did he have some genetic ability to not have as much vitamin C and to eat this strange diet? No. His, his name, Stefansson, stemmed from his parents emigrating from Iceland, and he was of pure Icelandic genetic origin. Now, Does, maybe, maybe the Icelandic people who came from Scandinavia are different from people from Southern Europe, but we don't think so, because subsequently I took a group of European-origin young healthy bicycle racers, and I put them on an Inuit diet for a little over a month. And now the Inuit diet was not seal blubber and whale meat. The Inuit diet was 
market foods that we could find in Boston back in the 1970s. And we had them eat that diet for months. We were interested not in whether they'd get scurvy, but whether they could uh, function well physically on a diet that was very low in carbohydrate. These are highly trained bike racers in the off-season, so they weren't racing. They were just trying to maintain their fitness. They were riding their bikes in training between 100 and 200 miles a week. The first week on the low-carb diet, they kind of struggled with maintaining their training regimen. But after that, they said that their training went just as well. And when we measured both their peak aerobic power and endurance performance, after four weeks of adapting to the low-carb diet, there was no reduction in either peak power or their ability to do relatively high-intensity endurance exercise. Steve Finney, did you perhaps pick bicycle racers who had some Native American blood in them so that they genetically were more able to adapt to this kind of eating? Just in terms of their surnames. A couple of them had English origin surnames. One was Estonian, one had a German surname, and one was pretty pure in Greek origin based on his parentage. So all European, but a fairly wide variety. Let me bring this back full circle because, A, I don't think that we know for sure what role vitamin C plays in a diet which is low in carbohydrate. Why is that? Because we know vitamin C counters what we call oxidative stress, oxygen-free radicals. And in a recent group of studies published by Dr. Jeff Volek at the University of Connecticut, he has demonstrated that when he takes people on a mixed diet and switches them to a low-carbohydrate diet, their level of oxidative stress and inflammation goes down. So it may not be that you don't need vitamin C when you're on a low-carbohydrate diet. You just need less of it because you have less oxidative stress and enough that when you eat meat, because fresh meat does contain some uh, vitamin C, not a lot, maybe a few milligrams, but maybe you don't need 50 milligrams a day when you're on low-carb. Maybe you only need 5 or 10, and that's enough that you can get from a diet, including fresh meat, that doesn't uh, contain fruits and vegetables. When you say fresh meat, do you mean meat that's been freshly killed and then you cook it and roast it? Or do you mean steak tartare? Do you mean raw meat? Well, most of us don't overcook our meat. And for instance, when pemmican is made, it's not cooked. It's air-dried. And then hot fat is added only very briefly at the end of the process. And we don't know how much of the, quote, anti-scorbutic value, that is vitamin C-like material, persists in meat when it's preserved in that way. It's not an answered question. It's an unanswered question. But the evidence, weight of evidence at this point is that scurvy is not a problem for people who eat a hunter's diet where that hunter's diet is based on the dietary practices of people who did it for 10,000 years or 100,000 years. And I'm thinking of traditional diets where often there is some amount of a kind of a condiment that's made of raw meat, whether it's raw fish, steak tartare, or something else like that, or raw eggs. There are a lot of cultures that have this as a side dish with whatever else they're eating. The Inuit ate raw meat, seal meat and seal blubber. You know, they'd kill the animal, it would freeze, and then they would gnaw on the partially sitting at their igloo dwellings. As the raw meat thawed, they would eat it kind of like we would eat ice cream. There are a lot of those practices which weren't necessarily respected as having any value. It was looked upon as being uh, uncivilized, and yet it may have had a central role in that these people had come to empirically understand preserved their health. But let me come back full circle to the native peoples of this region here, say the Upper Missouri River, the Platte River. These are the statistics from Catlin's letters of description of the people. He said... It was rare to find a Cheyenne male. Now, this is written around 1830. It was rare to find a male of the Cheyenne tribe under six feet tall. 
He said, among the Osage people, which were further south, I believe down in the Kansas area, few were less than six feet tall. Some of them were seven feet tall. Now, George Washington was said to be six foot three, and he was considered to be one of the tallest people in the colonies. And remember that the people who came to North America, many of them lived by hunting. They ate more indigenous food than if they had stayed on, say, farms as subsistence farmers in England. If diet and eating a higher percentage of indigenous food is a factor, many of these colonists would have been taller than their ancestors or their brethren remaining in England. But the point is that George Washington was unusually tall for the colonies. And here is a tribe, the Osage people, where it was not unusual for them to be seven feet tall. There was a chief of the Kiowa nation, whose name was, I'll have to figure this out phonetically, Katsatoa, who was about seven feet tall. And Catlin paints his picture. And in the picture, you see a very robust, but absolutely not corpulent person. This is a guy who is very muscular, very lean, and very tall. He was a chief, so he'd probably been selected like Washington was selected as our chief. But he was, even by today's standards, a very tall person. These guys could have played in the NBA. We could say, well, maybe that's genetic. But the appearances are that that was diet. And I like finding hard data. I don't like people's estimates or guesses or presumptions. I treat Catlin's information as hard data. The guy could write and he knew how to measure. But the most fascinating body of data was created by a guy named Franz Boas. Franz Boas was a German-born anthropologist who, in preparation for the 1892 World's Exhibition in Chicago, he went among the native peoples who were living on, at that time in reservations, the Plains Indian who'd, who'd lived on the buffalo and who up until up to 20 or 30 years before had been eating purely their indigenous diet. He went among those people and measured them, not just unusual specimens, he measured the averages. And he found that the average Lakota or Cheyenne or Kiowa male was over an inch taller than the average U.S. Army cavalry soldier, even in 1892 when they were already pretty well separated from their indigenous diet. Again, it's evidence to me that diet is a significant factor in height. And the bottom line for me is that at least in terms of ability to grow and live through the life cycle. There is no evidence when practiced based on acquired indigenous dietary practices that that diet has any negative effect on growth or well-being. Well, you describe people that are tall. Did they live a long time? Well, these are people who we would call them Stone Age. They were highly evolved in their cultural and linguistic practices. They were not, quote, literate in our modern sense of the word. They did not have our modern medicines. But as I said, when Catlin went among the people in the upper Missouri River 25 years after Lewis and Clark, he met people who had met Lewis and Clark. And those are people old enough to remember. Uh, and remember, back in the early 1800s, the average lifespan in the United States, I don't know the figure, was probably 45, 50. People lived into their 70s and 80s, but they were unusual. And there were elderly people among the native peoples as well, some of whom were painted by Catlin and thought to be 70 or more years old. So there is no evidence that this diet, in and of itself, shortened people's lives. I've got two more questions. One's an ancient-oriented one, and one will be a very modern one. The ancient-oriented one was, 
couldn't this stupendous health and strength and height of these Native Americans been attributed to the fact that they exercised so much? That's quite possible. But if you were a subsistence farmer planting wheat or planting corn or planting potatoes and raising those, you were doing a lot of exercise. Oh, and, and you mentioned that in that African culture that the Maasai, who were the hunter-gatherers, were healthier than the subsistence farmers who lived basically alongside them, even though both were very physically active. That's correct. The Maasai women were noted to eat some vegetable material, particularly when they were pregnant. That it would imply that they had some intuitive sense that there were greater needs for, say, minerals, trace minerals, than more than they might optimally get from meat during pregnancy. But it was a point of pride for the males that they never touched vegetable matter. Do you have to be an exerciser, somebody who's physically active, to eat this kind of diet without it hurting you? I think that exercise is a secondary factor in this equation, not a primary driver. It appears to me, based on the studies I've done and what I've read, that if you make a transition to a hunter's diet, there is a brief lag period of a week or so, but your body tells you, wait a minute, give me a few minutes here to adapt to the sudden change. But after you have a week of consistently following a hunter's diet, exercise capacity comes back. So to me, this diet does not prevent exercise, but it is not necessary to exercise constantly or consistently in order for the diet to be safe. Many nutritionists say that we need to have carbohydrates partly to have the fiber from carbohydrates. So are people on a hunter-gatherer diet constipated all the time? Do they have bowel problems? That's kind of a squeamish topic, but it will be on people's minds. You have to remember that the best observations, that is the time period when Europeans were interacting with native peoples in North America, this was in the Victorian era. You didn't talk about those things. That was considered pornography. So unfortunately, we really don't know. The, well, what about your bicycle riders? Were they constipated all the time that they were doing your diet? Because we live in an age where we can talk about this kind of thing as long as we're scientific about it. Sure. Well, let's go back to basic principles. Why do we need fiber? And people think, oh, we need fiber for bulk. So we have nice, large, firm stools, and they pass easily. Biochemically, the reason we need fiber is when you're eating a, a carbohydrate-containing diet, if you want to nourish the lining of the large intestine, we think, well, you know, the bloodstream provides nutrition. Uh-uh. The primary source of nutrients for the lining of the large intestine comes from the waste material inside the intestine, and bacteria in our fecal matter break down fiber, produce things called short-chain fatty acids, things that are three and four carbons long, and those short-chain fatty acids are the primary source of energy for the lining of the colon. Well, if you're an Inuit or you're a Lakota Sioux eating an indigenous diet and you're not eating any fiber, where would those short-chain acids come from? Well, it turns out that when you're on a low-carb diet, your body makes these chemical compounds called ketones. And guess what? They're short-chain acids. And unlike blood sugar, which has to be transported through membranes by active transport, the ketones flow throughout the body as essentially free agents. They penetrate all tissues, and it is very credible that the nutrition for the lining of the colon would come from the ketone bodies that were circulating throughout a person's body. Not just my bike racers were on low-carb diets, but the roughly 3,000 patients that I used low-carb diets on during my 20-plus years of clinical practice consistently told me that they had less colon problems, less concerns about either constipation or diarrhea when they were on a low-carb diet containing very little fiber compared to when they were eating a fiber-rich, you know, optimum-balanced diet. And, and your rationale is that this was feeding the microbes in our gut 
and that was creating enough bulk to have healthy stools that kept the colon clean and the intestines clean? It's not so much the bulk, it's the, quote, happiness of the lining cells of the colon. If the cells lining your colon are happy, it's going to function well. It doesn't matter whether you produce four cups of stool a day or one cup of stool a day. It's going to be the right consistency. It's going to be easy to pass. You know, the Inuit didn't have outhouses. The Inuit lived for at least half the year in a very hostile climate. I'll guarantee you they did not poop inside their igloos. And they didn't have magazine racks in their outhouses because they were sitting there a long time. They, they didn't have that. They did not have heated toilet seats either. The relatively modern people who lived in the Arctic, who we call the Inuit, we believe based on archaeological records that they lived there for 3,000 years. You know, they figured it out. They could probably get their duty done in a brief period of time and uh, not have to worry about uh, straining or whatever uh, waiting a long time. Or uh, diarrhea or all of the other complaints yeah, that are so not, common today. They did not have a rich supply of toilet paper there. Let's move on to another topic here. Yes, let's do. Aneurysms. That's where blood vessels or arteries within the body in different places swell up, lose their integrity, and break. Udo Erasmus is an expert on oils, and his statement to me was that among the Inuit, one problem they did have because they were low on vitamin C is a more likely tendency to have problems with arteries and blood vessels breaking inside their bodies because they didn't have enough vitamin C to maintain the integrity of those. They were slightly deficient, and that was a more common problem. Is that the case for people on this kind of diet? They're more prone to aneurysms? There are reports that the Inuit had a higher incidence of stroke, which is brain damage due to blood vessels either plugging or breaking than was seen in European populations. We didn't do modern epidemiological research 150 years ago, but it would appear that the Inuit, when when medical missionaries went among Inuit living on their indigenous diet, they rarely reported cases of cancer, even though people lived into their sixth and seventh decades of life well-documented. Heart disease, heart attack, was rare or unknown, and we know that the omega-3 fats that people living along the coasts and along the rivers got from cold-water ocean fish protect and reduce the risk of heart attack. Dr. Volokh has done studies with non-indigenous foods, that is, our current market foods, in putting people on low-carbohydrate diets like the Atkins diet, which is what he has used in his studies, and demonstrates that inflammation goes down quite markedly. Biomarkers, blood materials that are signs of inflammation, go down markedly when you take people off of carbohydrates and put them on a properly balanced, that is, moderate protein, relatively high fat. And inflammation has, for the last decade, been a darling of scientists interested in in studying what causes heart attack. And a recent definitive study done a year ago called the Jupiter study clearly demonstrates that when you reduce inflammation, not cholesterol, but inflammation. That's C-reactive protein, among other things. C-reactive protein, interleukin-6, um, uh, VCAM, ICAM. There's a whole salad of different chemicals we test to measure for inflammation. That reduction in inflammation is directly and, and rapidly associated with a reduction in heart attack risk. So, yes, there may be some side effects of the low-carb diet in terms of vascular health in the brain. Tying it to vitamin C, I think, is a bit presumptuous because uh, you said Dr. Erasmus? Udo Erasmus. 
Where did he get his data? Were those people completely free of carbohydrate in their pristine indigenous condition, or were they getting carbohydrates in trade and eating partially native foods? Were they kind of in between? My example of of dietary safety of low-carb is I don't think any low-carb diet is safe. I think that low-carb diets that are built around indigenous experience provide islands of safety in the same way that if you want to go on vacation and fly to Hawaii, you don't fly halfway there and land to see if it's getting better. You go all the way there and land. There may be islands of safety within the high-carb, high-fruit-and-vegetable arena. There may be islands of safety in the area of moderate protein, not high protein, moderate protein and relatively high fat. And the space in between, kind of the 50-50, kind of half on an indigenous diet and half off, may actually be much more dangerous than either of the islands of safety at the ends of the spectrum. Well, Steve Finney, if somebody wanted to try this kind of diet, this very extreme diet to most people's points of view, are you saying that it wouldn't be so good to eat this way five days a week and then have a weekend of fun and celebration with ice cream pizza? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Do that? Absolutely not. All of the evidence from other people's studies and from my own research is that the human body loves consistency and does not like inconsistency. When you started out the interview, you mentioned that we have a book that's coming out. It's a revised version of the Atkins diet. He's not here to write this, so we've, uh, along with myself, recruited two other excellent medical scientists. With, with, with all due respect to Dr. Atkins, the amount of science expertise that you and Dr. Westman and Dr. Volek have is actually deeper than Dr. Atkins. That's correct. Science, modern science. And we think we've brought current medical science. But what Dr. Atkins brought to the diet was, in a way, similar to what a Lakota or Kiowa grandmother brought to this. Dr. Atkins treated thousands of patients on these diets. And he had, I think, an excellent empiric body of observations. And he basically evolved a diet that worked well for the purposes of his time, which was to help people relatively easily and healthfully lose weight. What we've done is moved beyond there. I think I've brought some, a little bit of the old, the history of indigenous diets to this, and a little bit of the new, an understanding of how the body uses fat and selects amongst fat, fats to give people guidance that makes these types of diets not only useful in the short term for weight loss, but potentially useful for long term in managing diseases involving insulin resistance, such as metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, uh, and high blood pressure. That is a diet which is sustainable, not for a few weeks or a few months, but sustainable for decades to allow people to remain healthy and functional.